you know, imagine all of those sorts of themes, but apply it to 1920 or to 1890, you know, where it's just like, hey, this is what, what was happening 200 years ago in, you know, context of something that's very relevant today. I, you know, I, I think that that's where this project could go um, eventually. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Before we get to today's guest, I just want to uh, ask a favor of you. If you could give us a rating, review, or a share on any of those social platforms or wherever you're listening, in particular the Apple Podcast platform, those things are particularly helpful uh, for getting the word out, for getting the show in front of more people and, and helping us grow what we do here at A New Angle. So um, shameless plug, but uh, we need your help, and thank you. Okay, this week we're bringing you my conversation with Chris Wright, 2002 graduate of the University of Montana College of Business, and he's been working at Google pretty much since graduating. That's over 15 years, and what an interesting 15 years it's been for technology and for Google in particular. He's worked in a variety of marketing roles, and his current title is Head of Awareness for Google Cloud. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, including an amazing collaboration he's doing with the New York Times Photo Archive, as well as his new personal venture, Try the Podcast. It's a super cool pod about exactly what you would think, trying to do new things. So I'm stoked to bring you this conversation with Chris right now. Okay, so we're here today with Chris Wright. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. I've listened to a couple, and uh, I'm a fan. So, Chris, wh when did you get out of University of Montana? Was it 2002? It was, yep, 2002. Classmates. Graduated high school in 98. Yeah, I mean, I graduated with, like, Mario Schultzke and Jesse Pashnick and some of those guys. Uh, so there, there was a crew of us that were kind of running around, kind of jokingly fun competition among among buddies within the marketing um school <laughs> and it's been amazing to see kind of what you guys have all done i mean uh mario and jesse each have their own kind of amazing things going on but you've been at google since 2003 i mean what an amazing yeah. 15 years to be at that particular company it's it's a long time to do anything and you're right, right at this point that's i mean that's more than a third of my life just at, at, at google as a at a tech company it's, it's kind of funny. They, they have a tool, an internal tool where you can look up. It's basically the statistics associated with my, my employment. But I can see, you know, how many people are named Chris at Google or how many people started after me, how many people were there before me. So I looked it up the other week. I think at this point, I don't know how many people are at Google. You can do a search like 80,000. Maybe there's 200,000 if you include contractors and vendors. But only 400 of them have been there longer than me. So I guess wow. I'm, I'm a dinosaur at this point. And how many were there <laughs> when you started? Oh, about 2,000. I mean, my, my employee number is 4,000, but we had some contractors. I mean, wow. when I started, there was just one cafeteria just doing lunch, and Charlie was the chef, and, you know, it was <laughs> it was a very different place. So, you know, you, you, you grew up, you spent time in Butte and then in Columbia Falls, if I'm not mistaken. And out of Montana, though, like, what made you think um, that you wanted to go to, you know, the emerging tech giant that well i mean 2003 google isn't wasn't was it is today but it was kind of on on, on the rise it was the forefront of cool things happening in the digital age it was yeah it was kind of well known that the company was going to be successful there was there was sort of little doubt about that at the time but you know yahoo was so much of a bigger player i mean they had all the market share google really didn't have any and you know it's funny you say like how did i decide to to join google i really would have joined 
any <laughs> any company okay. that would have had me. I mean, you know, I left the University of Montana. I taught English for a year in South Korea with a group of, of University of Montana friends of mine. And when I returned, I just started applying to jobs. Now, the only reason I, I knew of Google, it got introduced to me when I was a, a sophomore in college. So you have to imagine just searching Yahoo, and then I go into a class. I think it was like a business law class, and somebody's explaining that Google is a better search engine because of the, well, it was first called Backrub, but basically looking at the metadata and trying to find a most, the most accurate response. And I thought, well, that's fascinating. And I started really learning how to use Google as a, as a junior and as a senior because I served as our like the student lead for the advertising club, so it was okay. just really helpful to to do research. So I've been I've been excited about the company. I think yeah, I ended up writing a paper as a senior about Google's mission statement. So they were on my radar. I just I never thought that they would they would hire me. And in fact, when I returned from Korea and I applied to Google, they immediately said no. It was like the fastest turnaround of any company. They just said you know <laughs> no, you're you're not, <laughs> like dude, you're not you're not a tech guy. You went to University of Montana. They were only hiring people from. Well, know, they Stanford had the they had the day. fastest search at the time. They had the fastest response rate to applicants, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. It was probably some auto-generated response of just, "Hey, thanks, but no thanks." We we already know. <laughs> uh, but know how I got in? You know, I woke up the next day and I think I was searching on like monster jobs, and I managed to see this. It was a job called temp to hire at Google. So the idea was, if you were a good enough temp, you'd be allowed to interview for a position. So sure. I actually was. I guess a contractor for three months before they allowed me to interview for a full-time employee. So kind of an audition on the spot. It really was. It was It was pretty stressful, though, because you have to imagine every Friday you'd get a tap on the shoulder, come in for your review, and as soon as they knew that they didn't want to interview you, they'd just say, you know what, um, you don't have to come back on Monday. Oh, gosh. So I, yeah. yeah, so I got brought in with a group of 15 people, and by the end of it, you know, three or four of us probably interviewed for a full-time role, and maybe you know, a handful of us got in. Well— you know, 15 year, years later, I mean, you've done some amazing things. So, you know, just kind of based on what I know of your work, like the kind of the, the big piece was driving marketing for the Chrome browser. Is that kind of the, 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 the thing that you really sunk your teeth into early? That was probably the that was probably the biggest thing I sunk my teeth into in the marketing realm. I, I mean, prior to that, I was on the launch team for our Hyderabad office in India, which was fun because I was out there as like a 24 year old. And when I landed in India, they had six employees, and when I left, they had 250. So that was a really busy year, wow. and I did a lot of that recruiting. Yeah, but then as far as marketing goes, I would say the Chrome browser is probably you know what I sunk my teeth into the most. I basically landed on that team the day the browser launched, which was in September of 2008, and I was tasked with all earned, owned, and paid media, so all of our acquisition efforts. So it was my responsibility to know how much money we were willing to pay for a Chrome user you know, per region, per market. Um, what was the retention rate like? Those sorts of things. That's going to be interesting because I would think that, I mean, the lay customer probably doesn't even know what a browser is. It's just sort of, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, like it's you just, don't even know what an operating system is. You just sort no. of, that's that's the computer that does its thing. Why do you, yeah, and why do you care about your browser? What you care about is is the internet and checking your email and doing stuff. And so basically Google designs a browser that's meant to get out of the way. I mean, even the word <laughs> Chrome is, it actually is a generic term that refers to the what you're able to visually see around a browser that's called chrome and so then they called the browser google chrome as as a result of that but prior to that i don't know you know justin if you remember but there were all these toolbars that you could stick onto your browser so like if you had internet explorer or firefox you could have three different toolbars and oh, yeah. be like a pandora tool, right and, and we were just like oh that's cluttering up the uh, the experience so let's just do away, away with all of that but it was a tough sell i mean i was on the team when 
we were just trying to go from 1% market share to 3% market share. And could we do that in one quarter? If so, how? And I mean, you know, we're, we're leading today, but nobody would have guessed it in, in those days. It was absolutely an uphill battle. I mean, and it's such, it presents such a, like an interesting branding. I mean, the success of the Google brand has been unbelievable. And, and, you know, the fact that it's a verb and all that is well known. But like, I think about my experience converting my parents to Chrome and the vocabulary lessons that we have to go through <laughs> over and over and over again. Like, okay, mom, this is the browser. This is the search engine. And it's just all Google to them. <laughs> so my favorite is we did all this market research with Internet Explorer. And they'd say, well, I click on the E because the E means Internet. Right. There and I'd say, <laughs> and I'd go, I'd go, can you spell the word Internet? And they'd go, I-N-T. Okay, so, so you're literally clicking on an E saying it's Internet, but Internet is, st- is spelled with an I. It was really funny. We have a lot of videos <laughs> from oh, 10 yeah. years ago on that subject. That would be just rich focus group material. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was... It was a tough one. You know, it started with a lot of like heavy hitting acquisition and kind of attracting that early adopter crowd. And then we started doing some really big brand work with Chrome by about 2010, 2011, maybe. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned Google as just being such a a brand of familiarity. And, you know, we typically make the top five list when you think of the most valuable brands on the planet, you know, up with like Disney and Sony and those sorts of Coca-Cola types of brands. But we actually put a stake in the ground and said, you know, Chrome needs to stand alone. If, if we lean on Google for everything we do, it could potentially be detrimental to the Google brand, especially if something is not, you know, not a proven success yet, if you will. So there was a point, you know, maybe six, seven years ago where our, our head of marketing said, you know, we have four brands we care about. One is Google, but Chrome is going to be standalone now. It's not Google Chrome. And then you have YouTube and you had Android and things have even changed and kind of progressed from there. But you know, the, the company's pretty cognizant and aware of just how valuable that core brand is. And it's something we take, uh, we hold pretty, pretty sacred, I'd say. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the brand and the user experience and all these pieces tie together. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. So I want to talk about this really amazing project that you are working on now, this, this New York Times photo archive project. Um, basically, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, 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 the program is to take the millions and millions of photographs that the New York Times has in their archives and digitize them. That's exactly it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just to kind of bridge between me being on a Chrome browser and getting to the New York Times and playing around with 100-year-old photographs, yeah. uh, like Chrome ended up then becoming the Chrome operating system, which, of course, Chrome Books is built on, upon. And then you had Chromecast come out. So that was like a three- to four-year journey. And then they folded Android underneath Sundar, because Android is another operating system like like Chrome is. So I worked on sure. some brand work there and then eventually stepped away and said, okay, it's time for a totally different change. I've been in the hardware world for a while promoting Nexus phones. So I left that team right around the time that the, the first Pixel was coming out and went over to Google Cloud. So now that I'm on Google Cloud, it's all about you know our, our infrastructure, our tools, our competitive set is you know Microsoft and, and Amazon. And so we're trying to differentiate. We're trying to show that, that our cloud is, is pretty smart, pretty good at what it does. And so the New York Times has been a partner of Google's for a long time. I mean, they, they, they were an existing customer, and the two brands have done some pretty meaningful stuff together. And they approached us with a, a kind of cool business challenge. They said, you know, we have 8 to 12 million photographs. They're stored in the bottom, like, three levels of the New York Times. Below, ground, you know, if you walked into the New York Times, you'd have to go downstairs to find these photographs. And it's just funny. The fo- You wouldn't think this, but 
8 to 12 million photographs weigh so much that if they were in these huge steel containers on like floor four, they would just simply fall through the floor. And basically the infrastructure, the New York Times can't handle that. And so they call it the morgue. And basically it's where these old photographs go to die. And as you can imagine, I mean, it's got to be like one in a hundred photos actually gets printed into the newspaper, Mm -hmm. you know, when the team is going out and shooting them. So the idea behind the project was, well, what if we were to digitize all of these photographs? And on the surface level, it's like, okay, that's kind of interesting. A lot of us probably have old black and white photographs in our, in our attic. Uh, you know, I'm on a thread right now with the Montana Standard, which is Butte's, Butte's paper. They're, they're privy to a lot of old black and white photographs as well. What makes the New York Times so interesting to a lot of us is not so much the story on the front of the photo, which, which is kind of, you get it, you know, it's a, it's a moment in time from a long time ago. But on the back, there are all these really interesting handwritten notes, and you see you know, somebody who may have passed away, but writing down why they took the photo. And then anytime the photo was used in the Times, they would clip the headline, they'd tape it to the back of the photograph. Oh, wow. So these photographs become this record of when, where, and why they were they were utilized. And so that part of it is, is pretty interesting. And so, you know, when you're kind of thinking about this, and by the way, we'll post to the show notes this incredible, it's like a four-minute video piece that, you know, co-produced by oh, yeah. Google <laughs> New York Times. It just shows... Totally. The imagery of this morgue and the character working down in the morgue, the, the whatever the the guy who curates all that stuff is just like <laughs> yeah, Jeff. <laughs> man, I mean, they couldn't have. It's central casting. They couldn't have picked a better guy for this job. I, I was watching that video, thinking this is like Walter Mitty. You know oh, oh, I know. He's yeah. such a character, and that's that's his job. I I think he's been at the Times for thirty to forty years. Never sure. never knew that he would become this this institution, but. It's sort of a problem. You you have one human who's approaching retirement, and he's the only one that really knows how to find right. anything down there. You know, and just to give you a kind of a fun example, if you were to look for any photograph of of a personal computer, a personal laptop, that whole category, all those photos are filed under calculator. Because when those oh, computers started coming out, they're like, oh, this is like a better version of a calculator. And so, and so the file cabinet says calculator on it, which is just, you know, you wouldn't think that today, but... It's just random little quirks like that, you know, throughout throughout the morgue. Yeah, and so as you're kind of talking about these dynamics, I mean, it speaks to, it's not just taking a bunch of photos and scanning them and storing them on a hard drive. I mean, this is like a, this is a huge endeavor as far as sort of harnessing the power of the Google Cloud to kind of organ, you know, not only house these photos, but also organize them in such a way that they're useful, not only for visitors, but also for the New York Times as an institution. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's almost more for probably their editorial staff, even, yeah. than, even than users. I mean, you, you almost just rephrased Google's mission statement, which is to organize all the world's information and make it universally usable, useful and, and accessible. And that's, I mean, this project just fits so perfectly in line with that. But you could imagine, you know, a couple of years from now when the project's done, and who knows how long it's going to take to, to digitize 8 to 12 million photos. They're, they're working on it every day. I mean, we're running a campaign right now, but the project is far from over. But you could imagine being a reporter and sitting down and just saying, Okay, the big Rockefeller Christmas tree. Uh, I want to see that going back 150 years, or I want to find the first known photograph of Martin Luther King. Uh, they, they showed me one photo, and some reporter was doing a story on a random little unknown radio station and was just snapping photos. And it turns out it's the first known photo that we have of Howard Stern that was taken by the New York Times. You know, just purely accidental. So I think that the team and the editorial staff is pretty excited about what they might you know, serendipitously find without even looking for it. You could just type in Howard Stern and it's like, oh, we never knew that was him, but oh, that is him. Sure. And here it is. And it's digitized. So it's, yeah, really, really interesting project. 
What are some of the most amazing photographs you've come across as in, being involved in this process, not only in terms of just the power of the image, but also you know, these notes on the back, just the stories that they uncover are pretty powerful as well. They are. You know, that's a really good question. There's, um, I'll give you a couple of examples, and you can find all these on the, the Google, I guess it's the cloud New York Times website. We created a little web hub. Um, there's one photograph that it is of the Rockefeller tree and you just kind of glance at it and you almost don't notice that the flags are at half mast, but they're at half mast because that was the day, the day that Truman died. Oh. And that's just an example of an insight where you would quickly the cloud, you know, could quickly know the date of the photo by looking at the back and say, Oh, that's the day that, that Truman passed away. Um, so not groundbreaking, you know, a human being could probably come up with that, but there was another one that's interesting. Apparently there's, there's some sort of a secret network beneath New York that was used as part of either government or FBI or CIA or World War II, all of it is going to be <laughs> like, nobody's allowed to know anything until I think the year is like 2025 or something, okay. but they printed specific markings on different manhole covers. And so they were able to pick that up on one of those manhole covers. And it's basically like, this was either a point of entry or, or a point of exit for some sort of a military government network. And I'm, I'm butchering the whole story, but you'll have to like read about it and figure out what it's all about. But New York is just kind of a fascinating place for a number of reasons. Well, and that also kind of, I mean, another fascinating place is Butte. And you mentioned you're, you're kind of working with the Montana Standard to, to start that. Are you starting that process of digitizing their photo record as well? You know, I'm going to offer it to them and then not have the resources to pull it off. <laughs> so I want to say yes. I want to say the answer is yes. Um, I, I actually started with the New York Times, and I said, well, you, you must have taken some photographs of Montana. Let's focus on Butte. Right. And they sent me, I think I, I forwarded them on to you, but mm -hmm. there's some really interesting photos, especially, you know, Butte in the 1920s, 1930s. Just really fascinating. They also shot some video back in like 1934 of a Woolworths, and they were trying to show that the economy was was slowing. You know, that was right kind of in the Great Depression time period. And so there you, you have the actual film, and then there are the handwritten notes of why the film was captured. So film is also a part of the project, which is kind of cool. And where it gets really interesting for me is that any photograph that is shot by a New York Times photographer is cleared for editorial use, which means you don't have to go out and kind of relicense it, if you oh, will. Oh, right. They've already paid the photographer their four bucks for the photo. Now, if I wanted to put it in a, in a marketing campaign, that's an entirely different story. Mm -hmm. But as far as just pure editorial, we could use these photos. And so they're, I think they're sending them to me. In fact, I thought they'd be here by now so I could be kind of holding them in my hands while we were chatting. But it's just really fun and interesting. And you know, there's there's so many photographs that Butte has. It'd be fun to do something with it. A coffee table book, a narrative that nobody's kind of come up with yet, or just kind of a different lens on top of Butte's uh, transformation. Yeah, I mean, just the, the juxtaposition of the sort of, you know, the mining extraction, just gritty human in, uh, imagery against the vast open spaces and snow-capped mountains and just the natural beauty. Just those two images, two sets of imagery against each other is pretty powerful. It is. And, and for me, too, it's just it's about the people that were there. You know, you have a lot of um, a lot of immigrants, a lot mm -hmm. of Irish. You have a lot of Chinese. You have, you know, Polish. And then the food that came in, you know, Butte has the pasty and it's not pasty. We call, we call it the Butte pasty. But all of that was kind of coming from from some of those countries where you just basically bake your meal inside bread and then that was it because you were a miner and you went down <laughs> you know and you mined for 12 hours a day or even you know they growing up you'd, you'd hear the the older folks in uptown butte say tapper light which is a reference to you know a mining practice where 
if you tap the dynamite too hard, then you blow up and kill yourself. And so they'd say tap or light, you know, going in and out of bars in Uptown Butte. But I'm just wondering, you know, if we were to start analyzing all the photographs that exist, could we start to show more of these either groups of people working together or even the role that um, that females might have played? You know, you start looking at old photographs and you start to realize that females really weren't much of a focus of a news story. You know, we just don't hear about it that often. Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. if you were to ask me, Name some of the most famous females, you know, that touched World War II, not in a military capacity, but in, you know, keeping the lights. I could be like, oh, A League of Their Own, the movie. Like, there's not a lot that's taught in the history books. So a group of us is kind of interested on that on that particular angle. And photographs, I mean, they're such a great way to capture the historical record. Right. Before there was Instagram and Facebook and you know, back when you had to actually be cognizant that when you were taking a photograph, you were you were using film, which was an expensive resource. And, you know, nowadays we've completely eliminated that. So we can take an abundance of photos that we still don't really know how to organize. But, you know, the Apples, the Googles, our phones, they try to pull out fun narratives and they can tell you when somebody's smiling and kind of make you chuckle or say, this is what happened a year ago. You know, imagine all of those sorts of themes, but apply it to 1920 or to 1890. You know, where it's just like, hey, this is what what was happening 200 years ago in, you know, context of something that's very relevant in today. I, you know, I, I think that that's where this project could go um, eventually. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. OK, special announcement coming up on March 8th is the 30th annual John Raffato Business Startup Challenge. This competition, hosted by the Blackstone Launchpad and the College of Business at the University of Montana, will feature 12 elite student teams pitching new and exciting business ideas to a panel of 50 hand-picked judges in a crowd made up of over 300 business professionals and Montana community members. Teams compete for up to $50,000 in awards while having the opportunity to network with venture capitalists, early-stage investors, investment bankers, economic developers, corporate executives, and successful entrepreneurs. Come be inspired by the new generation of Montana entrepreneurs. Tickets are $15 and available online through the John Raffato Business Startup Challenge website. We'll post a link to that website in the show notes. Check out this event. It's my favorite of the year. This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, when you're thinking about this project, I mean, this New York Times example is 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 particularly interesting because New York Times is a big, important client of Google. I mean, you guys provide a variety of services to the Times, and this particular project is a service. I mean, you're pro- providing a product and a service to a customer, yet at the same time, it's sort of this, you know, co-marketing of the project is beneficial to both parties and, it, and it's great sort of public demonstration of proof of concept. How are you kind of thinking about this in your particular work about, you know, building brand awareness and awareness for this particular line of uh, services that Google provides? I mean, you, you nailed it. I, like we have, we have an internal mantra that we just say, you know, show, don't tell, put the customer first. I mean, authenticity is, is the single greatest tool that a marketer can have. Um, And let's think of something that's sort of inauthentic. You know, if I were to pick on a product, maybe it's, oh, I don't know, Pepsi. And Pepsi is the taste of a new generation. And so they're going to seek out, you know, Britney Spears or LeBron James or or somebody like that. So there's not a lot of authenticity there. I think for the most part, we all get that those those celebrities have been paid a fair amount of money. But it sort of works. And, you know, so a lot of the, the consumer goods and those types of brands have to kind of resort to that. But because we're Google and Google Cloud, we, we never want to do that. And I, I really can't tell you the number of people and brands and companies that pitch me an idea 
and then say, well, well, we're technically on Azure. We're technically on Azure, but but we're willing to just on this web page, we'll put the Google Cloud logo. And we're just oh, like, that's that's literally the opposite of anything we want to do. So it's it's just not going to work. Um, but we're fortunate enough to have enough kind of big name companies, even, you know, we're not a market leader in the cloud space by any stretch, but we have enough big com- companies out there and customers that we can start telling their stories. And what's even, I mean, what's the pitch for the, I'm not asking you to pitch Google um, cloud services, but like, what's the, what's the differentiator for a cloud service, basically one versus the other? I mean, you said, you said at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, the Google Cloud is doing things smarter and better. And what does smarter and better mean? How do you, com- how do you communicate smarter and better to a customer, whether it's a, an individual user that would be considering using the cloud myself or, or an institutional partner? Yeah. Gosh, there's so many wa- ways to answer that. I'll start with the easiest way, which is, you know, you, t- you think of something like Gmail. You know, Gmail or Drive or Box, you know, Dropbox, those, those are cloud services. That's at the, like, software as a service layer, which is pretty familiar because those infrastructures and those user experiences are built for, you know, the, the layperson. You don't really have to understand tech to get that. If you drop a photograph into Google Drive sure. or Box or one of those programs, log in from a different computer, it's like, surprise, it's there. Well, why was it there? Oh, it was stored on the cloud, which is a remote infrastructure, and therefore I can I can access it. So that part of it is pretty Simple-ish. I mean, I you know I could go into just the insane complexities of G G Mail or G Suite, but but leaving that aside, when we think of down many many layers lower, like why would we why would we want to use a public cloud infrastructure? I mean, let me ask you this, Justin. So, you know, if we were sitting next to each other right now and we each have a MacBook and each of them has processing power, right? There's certain things that they can do. Would you know how to connect the two together? Like like how long would it take you to connect the two together so that they're working? as one machine to solve a particular workload or task. You mean not with a cable, right? I mean, you could. I, I honestly, I don't even know if you could do it with a cable. Yeah, you, I mean. Then you'd so, need software. Yeah, that's a good question, <laughs> right? And then 30, 30 students. Okay, 30 students are in a room. You know, they want to crunch a whole bunch of numbers really quickly. The one student pulls up Excel and it says, boy, come back in an hour and a half because that's just how much data we have. And they say, well, geez, if we hook up 30 machines, it should take one thirtieth the amount of time, but nobody would know how to do that. So that that's kind of the benefit. And to give you a real life example, you know, the Hollywood movies in these, like there's so many special effects that require top-notch rendering, especially now that we're, we've moved on from HD into 4K. And I think I've seen like 8K and 32K, like pretty soon it's going to be more clear than what the, the human eye can see, <laughs> which is a little bit overkill. But if you want to build something like Guardians of the Galaxy, and you have one machine, I'm saying machine kind of loosely, let's imagine that's a really big processor, and, it, and Galaxy, Gal, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy says, you know, it's going to take you two days for us to just render this, and then, of wow. course, you're going to see something you don't like, then you're going to fix it, then you have to re-render. Well, if you're using a, cloud, a public cloud, it pretty much costs the same amount of money to spin up 10,000 machines for like one hour as it would for one machine for 10,000 hours, if sure. you would. So it's essentially like this big time set. You're basically... I don't know. It's 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 leveraging a twenty to thirty billion dollar infrastructure that Google has built, and now you no longer have to build that. And when we start to combine the value of like the Microsofts, Amazon, Google's networks, it's this insane amount of money. Um, 
the fun quote I read the other day is that the, you know, the amount of money that's gone into this huge infrastructure across the, the largest players, it's more than every like venture capital company combined. Like there's, there's no way that a startup could compete. So why not leverage it and pay your fair share? And so that's, that's why I keep hearing, you know, the cloud space is going to be a land grab and there's all these stats around, Oh, by 2020, it's going to be at this amount of revenue by 2025. It's even 10 times bigger than that. And, that, and that's why people are making those sorts of, uh, of statements. I think people are starting to understand that, I mean, these are relatively simple ideas, but the the masses are starting to understand that, whoa, this is actually a safer, more reliable place to store my personal data. And then maybe transferring that over to the companies that they work with, like starting to get more comfortable with, you know, data associated with, you know, their healthcare provider or their their mortgage lender, whoever, storing information off-site, not on a box that's in a basement like the New York Times morgue that could burn down <laughs> yeah. and fall into the sewer or wherever. Right. Yeah. It's 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 a really big mental shift. I mean, I, I had an aha sort of a, epiphany moment um, not too long ago. I'm going to say six years ago where I thought to myself, you know what, if, if I drove over my laptop with my car, it wouldn't even bother me. Nothing would be lost and I would just go and get a new, a new laptop. Um, and that, that's a pretty... F- kind of a ridiculous thought when you think of how we all grew up with like floppy disks and hard drives how much storage do you have and you're backing up everything and my father probably still does a lot of those things (laughs) but like you know my macbook right now there's not even a dvd rom i can't even play a cd anymore like i i only got married nine years ago i have a dvd i don't even know how to play it (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly you better figure it out before it's too late yeah or not before my wife gets mad at me right yeah exactly (laughs) So let's, Chris, let's, um, I mean, I could pick your brain about all these layers of technology where the industry's going for, for hours, but um, we'd be probably down to a listener and a half or something by the end of that. That's so, what I was going to actually, how many, how many people are listening right now? That's kind of interesting for me. That's what a bit of an estimate? empirical question. Um, you know, I think on average we get about 650 listens per episode and some, you know, that's some pop lot. more than others. Um, but that's, so it's, it's, I will say that's, that's a smaller number than I'd like it to be obviously, but at the same time, we're pretty consistent. Our, our analytics show that we get about, you know, the average listener listens to about 80% of each episode, which, um, I think the, the, the industry standard, if, if you call it that is like 43%. So we're pretty good on that uh, metric. And um, I don't know. That sounds really good to me to have that many listeners and to be so niche that you're focused on. Like, I know you, you'd say you're not just Missoula, Montana, but I would imagine a lot of listeners are tied to Missoula somehow. Oh, that's yeah. Probably yeah. How, I mean, how the, they came to hear about. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the core listenership is very much Missoula, Montana. And um, would you, know, you say that's it's predomin- of, predominantly students or half and half? You know, I think it's a growing number of students. I'm always surprised, actually. Um, students on campus telling me they're listening but also um also there's like a core of i don't know i don't know quite how to describe it but i mean they're kind of like this network of people and they're kind of representative of some of the guests that we've had on um and maybe it's just a reflection of my own personal orbit within missoula but um yeah it's it's i'd say it's hard to pin down. I'll get comments from somebody 
and I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you were listening or you would even know about <laughs> it. And then, and then other people that I th- like, I've been trying to get them to listen, you know, good friends of mine, they're like, oh yeah, I'll listen to that thing someday. <laughs> like, so No, I, I mean, I started ta- you know, telling people, hey, have you heard of this, you know, this Justin Angle, um, you know, podcast? And I'd say like two out of four people that I asked were like, oh yeah, I, I, I am well aware of it and I'm a regular listener. And those well, are just random, you know, friends of mine that still live in Missoula. Well, that's nice to hear. Um, and we're trying. I mean, I think we're we've struck a chord. Um, like I said, we, we like we get consistent listenership. It's just we'd like to expand it because I think there's more people out there that look and you know are similar to the people that are listening. So trying yeah, to find absolutely. Oh, so, keep it up, man. So speaking of podcasts, let's talk about your podcast. Try colon the podcast <laughs> colon is try the podcast. Yeah, which I love. Yeah, I mean, it's all about like. Well, you're going to explain it, but it's all about like trying to do stuff and that's what you've tried to do with the show you're trying to do stuff. yeah that's just it I, it seems so simple to say try to do stuff but the number you would just be amazed by the number of people that get directed to me and they're like oh that guy tried to do it and has a th- opinions on it you should meet with him before you try to do it and it could be anything from creating a video to a website but then it started to turn into hey i'm about to buy my first house or chris has strong opinions on like personal finance and why you should max out your 401k with your bonus before doing something else with it you know, thoughts around starting a business. You know, when I, when I joined Google, I, I absolutely had imposter syndrome. And in many ways I did for, I would say like 10 years. You know, it's, it's very odd to be surrounded by creme de la creme people from the Stanfords yeah. and the Harvards. And I'm just like, I had a boss once, This you know, not to go t- down a road too deeply, but he ended up being like head of marketing for Instagram. And he was the marketing director when the Chrome browser launched. And I kept hearing him use words that I, I'm pretty sure I knew the, the meaning of the word, but I wasn't 100%. I just wanted to look him up. And so then when he, when he left the company, I sent him this email and I said, here are 20 words that I knew that I wanted to use confidently. And I thought I understood them, you know, just kind of give, giving him, uh, you know, <laughs> a bit of a shout out. And he's like, look, I was just like you and I did the exact same thing. So it was just really funny. But it is words like tenable and codify and cognizant, you know, that people just kind of throw at you. But as a result of that, I started having people from, you know, Notre Dame, from Stanford show up and say, well, explain my stock options to me. Explain long-term and short-term capital gains tax. And the only reason that I know that is because my father taught me. He was really big on it, you know. And, but now it's like explain mutual fund versus index fund. And, of course, I have very strong opinions on that. And I just felt that as I was explaining things kind of more and more, I became more knowledgeable and also more opinionated. And so why not start kind of documenting this? And that's, that's sure. really how that podcast came to be. And I'm really, I'm really not a strong writer. I, I'm going to own that right now. I'm more the type of person that's like lives by the 80-20 rule. I'm going to take it 80% there. And then that final 20%, somebody else can, can deal with it. And so you're not going to be a great writer with that mentality. <laughs> in fact, when I, was in, when I was at the University of Montana, I don't know if you know Mary Ellen Campbell. I think she's mm-hmm. since retired. Yeah. Okay. So I took one of her classes and it was um, marketing for nonprofits. It was a 400 level class. And I sort of aced all the tests, and I was competitive with Mario, and I would see if I could get a better grade than him. And then the final thing, it was like a written paper. And, of course, I did it the night before for two hours. And I walk into her office, and she she gave me a B, and she's like, okay, you aced all the tests. You got a B on this. You're going to get an A. And she looks at me, and she's like, Chris, it doesn't matter how smart we think we are. You have to be a good writer. Um, and I was like, okay, point taken. And then And then that kind of haunted me later on at Google because I was trying to – I was trying to join the marketing org from the sales org. I was in a sales support function when, while living in India, and I was really passionate about marketing. And, you know, marketing was my emphasis at the University of Montana. And I went through six interviews as an internal applicant. 
And then they said, okay, you have to do a blog post as a writing Ooh. sample. And I was like, ugh. Here it is. So, yeah. So I take it home. I do the thing. I got a whole overnight. You know, I, I could have cheated and had a bunch of people proofread it. But I was like, how hard can it be? It's a blog post. So I turn it in and, and they come right back to me and they go, you know what? It wasn't, it wasn't good enough. We, don't, we, we have concerns about you joining marketing. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So I managed to talk my way out of it. I was like, I didn't quite understand it or give me another chance or something. And then, and then it was really funny. They go, okay, we'll allow you to get past the writing test, but we really need your SAT score. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. I'm 27 years old. I took the SAT when I was 17. And so it, it's, it was pretty funny. I, I, finally, I kept saying that I didn't know what it was, even though I did, but I didn't really want to tell them. Um, because it wasn't at the level of like a Stanford. I took the test once. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> right. So anyway, I add my mom to this email thread. I'm like, hey, mom, can you find my, my SATs? <laughs> and my mom responded exactly how I, how I knew she would, which was, oh, I went through all your drawers and I found your Boy Scout medals and I found your speech and debate. And then, oh, my gosh, what, what happened to Justin? I just found a picture of Justin. And she, and she goes, I found your grades from your, your, third, your third quarter. Would that be as good as your SATs? And it was so funny. And then the recruiter was like, okay, we give up like fine we'll allow you to come through and yeah we succumb (laughs) (laughs) right yeah so you know the point of telling that long story is that I, i really don't enjoy writing i have to write a whole heck of a lot you know obviously i'm on email all day long but once i started thinking of a podcast you know just speaking out loud and kind of off the cuff is something that i legitimately enjoy doing and as as soon as i started sitting with the microphone it was just instantly really fun for me so i've only got i'm gonna say six or seven episodes out right now but they're all stories around trying to do something, trying to accomplish something. And sometimes it's a very silly thing. Uh, the one that launched this morning is me interviewing my two eldest children. I have three boys and it's them just being ridiculous. And it's me asking them rapid fire, a hundred questions, you know, it's so, I listened to it this morning, Chris, it's, Did you so, really? <laughs> it's so adorable. And it, like any parent of kids in that age will just dig it because, you know, and I've had my, <laughs> it's funny, we're, we're recording in a little studio here and you can check it out next time you're in town. But I bring my kids in here occasionally, like on a weekend, I need to come in and I screwed up like a 30 second voiceover and I got to come all the way into campus to deal with that. And that's fine. And I have my kids with me and like to get 30 seconds with them sitting eight feet from me of silence. Yeah, man, it would, it's beyond Unheard of. like a superpower to achieve that. And so, yeah. I, <laughs> so they it, were, yeah, they were here and they're like, what's that cool microphone? I was like, all right. And I, I, I did some search, you know, top hundred questions to ask a four-year-old and it was just rapid fire. But if you guys listen to it, yeah, it's, I mean, try the podcast.com. You can find it, but yeah. So, you know, try the podcast was born, but I have try to be happy where, you know, there's a rap song that means a lot to me. And then Sean Aker is a Harvard professor that start, studied happiness. And then I get into Mr. Money Mustache. It's like a financial blogger that I follow pretty closely. So Try to Be Happy was a good one. The other one that might be really interesting for your crew, um, I'm pretty good friends with the head of, he's the head product manager for Google Earth. And so he basically lives his life thinking about what a map could look like five years out, 10 years out. So this one, really interesting. This one was yeah. great. Had tried yeah, try yeah, to build it. a map was the title. And I found it fascinating. And it was your first kind of more of an interview style show as well. It was. Yeah. Gopal's great. He just did a TED talk here in Boulder and he blew everybody away. I mean, just the amount of data in Google Earth is just like mind blowing, you know, just how you're trying to trying to pull something of, of meaning and of value and just this the authentic representation of maps. So that, that was a great one. What's funny is, you know, I don't have the time to edit my, my podcast myself. So I have a guy that helps me in the Philippines and he went to school for this. So he's really good. But he, he gives me all these tips and he goes, you shouldn't interview anybody until you've done 10 episodes. 
But by the time I'd done like four and it's just me and then I'm copying and cutting other content, it just felt really weird to be sitting alone talking into a microphone. So I wanted to get out there and just really start kind of talking to more more human beings. So I've interviewed a handful of like Lyft or Uber drivers and just, I don't know, whoever has any sort of interesting story to tell. I'll just kind of stop and say, hey, do you mind if I record this? And then maybe I'll weave it into something kind of at a later date. And so let's go back to that kind of meta theme and this notion of trying and doing things. It's something I think about here a lot at the University of Montana. I mean, this is, it's been a, it's been a challenging period of time here where we're, we've had declining enrollments and budgets have been thin and not a lot of like, no, very few people are going to walk into your door and say, Hey, I'm going to give you a bunch, a bunch of money to go think up an idea and go execute on that idea. You just kind of have to well, I mean, my response to it has sort of just been to do stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, try something new because what's been going on hasn't been working. So try something new. Um, and maybe and that's I, I bet that's met with some resistance, though. Yeah. Eh, generally, to some, I mean, if you're not taken away from other people or if you're not uh, getting in their way, like I tried to do this podcast and nobody said no. And now <laughs> it's got, you know, enough momentum that, you know, I think good things are happening. Uh, other times, uh, yeah, it might be a zero, more of a zero sum game. Like if I try to do something new, that might eliminate somebody else's uh, opportunity to do something new. And I think of trying in this particular environment here. I think try something new that you can spin up on your own, like control your own destiny and and figure it out. And um, you know, it sounds like you're, you're sort of doing that with your podcast, but it's also a reflection of a spirit of mind that mm-hmm. I think is. You know, it's consistent with how we teach entrepreneurship, you know, fail cheap, fail fast, all this sort of lean startup methodology. But I think it's consistent with kind of the just the way the world operates right now. I mean, we have and I've I've seen your 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 writing and thinking on this before. Like we have this incredible opportunity to just quickly spin up ideas and experiment with them. And mm-hmm. we can tell what works and what doesn't work pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, at Google, we'll hear our, our senior leads will make statements along those lines. But a lot of times I don't quite see it in practice, especially, you know, when you're hiring people that are really type A driven people who are straight A students, very, very difficult and hard on them to, to fail. You know, yeah. to give you an example, I, a colleague of mine had worked really, really hard the past six months um, every day just trying to get something off the ground. And, and due to unforeseen circumstances and no fault of her own, the, the campaign, the product, it didn't launch. Uh, and she was really hard on herself. She was like, I'm not going to get, get a good rating. I won't be promoted. Um, and I was like, the opposite is true. The way that you approach this is is how you should be evaluated, not not the outcome. And that that's a very difficult thought to get across to people, especially people that are pretty new to their job or new to the business or new to the company. You know, and that's where, I mean, maybe I think it's one of my strengths and one of my biggest weaknesses is that I'm just so kind of identified with athletics not that i'm a big sports fan but just you know athletics have been such a huge part of my life and you know if if you're going to achieve anything as an athlete you fail way 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 more times right like just the mathematics of baseball like if you hit a pitch three out of ten times then you're a hall of famer pretty much that means you're that means you're failing 70 percent of the time and so I find that working with athletes here who are, who are also students and then it's just in, just the, the, the mindset that that kind of has brought to my approach to work is, yeah, failing's not fun at all, but it teaches you the value of a process. And to your point about your colleague who 
you know, had a tough time when, when that particular product didn't get launched. If, if you, yeah, that message of, Hey, you followed the right process is a tough one, particularly when it doesn't work out, but, um, it's the right one. Totally. No, I, I, I love that baseball analogy too. I mean, you know, Google puts us through, uh, <laughs> I wonder if they didn't want people to leave and get an MBA, but they, they put us through all of the marketing classes that Wharton, uh, would offer a marketing student. And, you know, it's like a very fast <laughs> expedited course, but <laughs> one, one of the folks there is Stuart Diamond who teaches negotiation. Yep. I don't know if you've heard of Stuart. Yeah. You know, he kicked off the course and he just goes, all negotiating is, is trying to win one more time. And he's the same baseball example. He's like, you might win three out of 10 times and you're an all-star. If you win four out of 10 times, now you're Ted Williams and you're the greatest hitter that's ever played. So yeah. he is kind of a very similar example. And, and then, and then another just kind of anecdotal thought I was in New York city. Um, my manager won like some ad week brand award or something. So we got to go to New York and Serena Williams was there. And so hearing Serena talk, you know, they're showing, showing footage of her growing up. And as a, as a little kid, she doesn't look like she's 10 times more athletic than any other little kid. She just looks like a little kid who loves tennis. And in her speech, she just goes, you know what? I was three and a half years old. And I said, I'm going to win, you know, the U S open. That's what I'm going to do. And the parents were like, okay, that's nice, Serena. Um, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and she goes, you know, the first time I played in the, in the U S open, I got eliminated in the first round, but nobody in this room remembers the name of that person. And neither do I, <laughs> right. but now I'm Serena Williams. Yeah, exactly. So that's just kind of to your, to your point. Well, I am stoked you've launched this project. I'm excited to see, you know, the episodes that come out. You've got about seven out now, I think. And you said you've got a few more in the tank. So do you have like a schedule or, you know, how could people? Well, yeah, I feel, you know, I feel I decided... silly asking the guy from Google, like, how do people find your uh, show? You know, that's sort of it's like. Actually, no, it's funny you say that. I struggled to get my SEO up and running. I'm like, why can't I search and see myself? Um, and I'd go to trythepodcast.com. And from there, you can click off to iTunes or to Google Play or Stitcher or some of those other places. So trythepodcast.com is a great place to go. And then I'm going to release new material on Mondays. I've decided Monday, it's just my most creative day because I've been dealing with my kids all weekend long. Um, there's a punk rock band called no effects and they have a song that's like, it's called Monday is my favorite time of year. And basically it's because <laughs> on Monday the movies aren't sold out. There's no lines at restaurants. You get to do whatever you want because you've been in a rock and roll band all weekend long. So I think Monday, I'll, I'll do an episode kind of explaining it. Um, but yeah, I had one other question for you, Justin. Okay. Sure. So the last time we talked, you were saying that your analytics weren't as strong as you wanted them to be because blueberry was, it was a stronger analytics, uh, platform for podcasts than what you're currently using. Is that right? Yeah, so I use, um, well, I use SoundCloud now as a host, and then mm -hmm. I don't have an intermediary um, like Blueberry or Libsyn or one of those. I mean, th those services are hosts, and and they provide other services, too. When we launched this thing, I didn't really have budget for one of those options, and so I've been told that those platforms provide a little bit richer analytics, um, yet I haven't seen them for another podcast so i don't really know that haven't played sure. around yeah i'm on libsyn the analytics are pretty good I, I mean the reason i ask is on on that blueberry site they say that um you could get their analytics piece without the hosting i think it's only five bucks a month or something like that so so i i will officially be your your analytics sponsor if you want the five dollar a month tool if you have a student that can figure out how to use it so okay, put that in your back done. pocket if you I want will that go there find you go. a student to do that okay <laughs> all this right is and yeah live, for, uh, live sponsor hustle in the moment thank you chris 
There you go. Yeah, try the podcast can sponsor you. But uh, no, this is this is really fun. And if anybody wants to email me, I, I set up Chris at trythepodcast.com. That's probably a much easier way of reaching me than my Gmail address because it's just filled with spam and clutter because I was at Google prior to Gmail. So I got a very easy to understand Gmail address, which is C right at. And as a result, I get all kinds of spam. <laughs> kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Irony in, in real time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, go, always super fun to talk to you. I'm excited to see what happens, uh, both with this uh, New York Times collaboration and this whole digitization project, but also with Try the Podcast. And uh, I look forward to the next time we talk. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Perfect. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Have a great holiday. All right, folks, before we close, uh, Chris contacted me after the interview wanting to set the record straight on a couple of things. So uh, he recorded a bit of an appendix to this episode. So we're going to play that for you right now. Hi, all. This is Chris again. Um, I asked Justin if I could do a very quick um, addendum slash appendix to our interview because there were a couple of points that I'd meant to hit on and either it didn't come out right or I was completely wrong in what I was stating or I simply forgot. And so hopefully you can give me a couple of minutes. It's now 2019. So a couple of weeks have passed since we did the, uh, the initial interview. So first, um, I talked about a story involving New York City and some secret chambers or tunnels beneath New York City. So that story was accurate, but it actually takes place in London. So London is the town with those hidden chambers. We reviewed 35 to 50 historical untold um, stories as part of the campaign, and I simply got my wires crossed, no pun intended. So let me read about London here so you can get the real truth on, on what's going on there. And I'm reading verbatim off our website here. So in the 1940s and 50s, the General Post Office began secretly constructing a network of deep-level tunnels accessible via certain cable chambers that would protect the government in case of nuclear war. The full extent of the tunnels remain classified until 2026, when Nicolas Cage will go and discover them. (laughs) Okay, I made the last part up. Um, Number two, when I was talking about uh, the podcast that I host, Try the Podcast, I think, if I recall correctly, I immediately went to talking about myself and how I was kind of explaining different things over and over. You know, yes, that is part of it. I wanted to better document different problems or challenges that I've attempted to solve over the past 10 to 15 years. But really, it's stories of other people. You know, the episode that we're releasing today is a friend of mine who's starting his own gym. We've already talked about, uh, you know, a cancer survivor. We've talked about people just trying to create their own protein supplements. So if any of you out there have something you're trying to do, either a side hustle or maybe a volunteer thing or even your full-time job, shoot me a note, chris at trythepodcast.com. I would love to have you on the show. Um, number three, I'd meant to cover off on a, just a couple of my favorite teachers from Montana, just to give them a shout out, you know, have to attribute at least 20 to 25% of my overall success and well-being to the teachers that I had growing up in, in Montana. So, uh, you know, the teacher that resonated the most with me throughout elementary school was Mr. Lou Parrott. And he's from Butte. He's now retired, but just one of the most creative teachers that I've had to date. Just imagine a classroom that where there were challenges surrounding you. You never quite knew where a challenge might be, a puzzle. He created his own monetary system. We had fake $100 bills so I could buy baseball cards or, in many instances, my friend's desserts during lunch with a $100 bill that I may have received for acing a spelling test. Just a very creative teacher. And the school year ended with Mr. Parrott literally burying buried treasure out back. And we had to do all these puzzles and challenges and follow clues and use compasses to try to big up, dig up the buried treasure in the back of Hillcrest Elementary. Just a very cool guy. 
Um, next up, Dr. Dan Kahalen is the marketing professor I had at the University of Montana, and he was the executive sponsor of the Ad Club, where I was the student lead. So Dr. Dan, as we called him, just really fostered this spirit of, you know, it was so much more than a class. We were a team. There was a community. We went bowling every Thursday, which he just paid for out of pocket, I'm pretty sure, unless, <laughs> unless there was some very rich, well-off kid that was covering all those bills. Um, I've lost touch with Dr. Dan, tried reaching out through LinkedIn and past email addresses. I'm pretty sure sure he's still in Missoula. So if anybody knows Dr. Dan Kahalen, he's a lawyer in Missoula somewhere. Tell him to come and, and track me down. And then since leaving the University of Montana, have really developed a relationship with uh, Dr. Jackie Moore. So Jackie is still a marketing professor there. I didn't have a chance to take one of her classes as an undergrad because she was only doing master's level classes there. So unless you were Mario Schultzke, you didn't get to take Jackie's classes throughout the, the early 2000s. So those are three teachers that just really resonated with me. I mentioned at least 20 to 25% of my success coming from um, all, all of the teachers that I've had in Montana. I would say the remaining 80% comes from drinking Butte's tap water during the 80s. True story, my mom would run the tap water out of the faucet. It would be off color, smell a little funny. She would just boil it for 20 minutes and say, there, whatever was in there is dead. Just drink it up. And she was a pediatric nurse, so we didn't really argue with her. All right. So fourth, the final point that I meant to touch on, uh, Cold Smoke is one of my favorite beers from Kettle House. They do not distribute outside of Montana. I checked. I've emailed them. So if anybody can get their hands on a keg of Cold Smoke, shoot me a note. I'll pay for it. If you're headed to the Denver area, uh, the Google Boulder office has four different kegs on tap in this little kind of pub area as part of the office. And I'm pretty sure that the 800 or so Google employees need to experience a, a cold smoke firsthand. So let me know. It'd be fun. And I hope to see some of you soon in the near future. With that, I'll end. Thanks for letting me talk to you yet once again. <laughs> Go Grizz. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris as much as I did. Connect with him on LinkedIn if you're interested in learning more about his work and what Google's doing. Also, check out Try the Podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's it's a cool show, and Chris's uh, his episodes are just getting better and better, and it's been fun to see that that show develop. Okay. Next week, my conversation with Mark Sinnott, professional climber, journalist, and the author of the new book, The Impossible Climb. It's an amazing book. It tells the story of Alex Honnold's free solo climb of El Cap in Yosemite. Mark's an amazing guy with an amazing story, and I'm very excited to bring you that conversation next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you all know that they're big and they pretty much sell everything electrical you would ever need. But what you might not know is that they hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about job opportunities at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, executive producer, Stefan Borsum, producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkel, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.